Welcome back to the Go Shout Love podcast. Today we have a special additional episode this month as we are talking with Dr. Jonathan Strober, the director of the Neuromuscular Clinic at Benioff Children's Hospital at the University of California, San Francisco. We are also talking with Meredith O'Connor. She's the Assistant Vice President for Patient Engagement, Advocacy, and Policy for Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America. Normally, our episodes are geared towards the families and hearing their stories, but today we are going to get an expert look, a sort of behind-the-scenes glimpse from the professionals that are associated with myasthenia gravis. I wish we could do this with every diagnosis we come across at Go Shout Love. There are valuable insights and information that isn't to be taken for granted. It is a fantastic conversation that we had the privilege to host, and we are very grateful to both of our guests for their time. Leading this conversation is Josh Feach, our executive director of Go Shout Love. Now, if you aren't familiar with us, then let me introduce you to Go Shout Love. Simply put, we do amazing things for amazing families with kids on rare medical journeys. Each month, we shout love for selected families by selling creative apparel that is inspired by the featured kids. For example, this month we are shouting love for Elizabeth and Charlotte, two heroic and strong sisters who share a medical diagnosis along with a love of Legos. Every purchase this month will go towards the cost of medical infusions not covered by insurance, as well as research funding for pediatric myasthenia gravis, which is their diagnosis. We do have more than t-shirts. We have comfortable sweatshirts, hoodies, tank tops, hats, and more. You can also start a subscription and shout love every month with a new, unique t-shirt design. Simply go to our website, goshout.love, to check out our store and subscriptions. We also share their story through video, social media posts, an Instagram takeover, and of course, this podcast. You can listen to the previous episode, which is a conversation with Stephanie and Dustin, the sisters' parents. Please also take a second to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We are in the business of shouting love for these kids, which includes reaching as many people as possible who will hear and share their story. Thank you both so much for being here. I know your time is really valuable and you're doing great work. And so I would like to start there. Um, Dr. Strober, could you just introduce yourself and kind of how you made, how uh, MG made it on your radar and kind of came became part of your life's work? Great, thank you for having me. It's, it's awesome to be able to talk about this, for sure. Um, so I uh, finished my training in pediatric neuromuscular medicine many years ago um, and came out to San Francisco and started the clinic. Um, and we see patients with many different conditions there, uh, and myasthenia is one of them. Um, and so I've been taking care of kids with myasthenia gravis for, for several decades now. And during that time, I've run into some amazing people, which is why I love what I do, and happened to be one of them was so grateful for the care that they wanted to um, donate money to help in research with pediatric myasthenia gravis. So of course they came to me as to like, well, what should we do with this, with these funds? And I said, I have a perfect idea. This is such a rare disease and we know so little about it. Um, let me get some friends together from around the country and start a consortium of sites that we call the Pediatric Myasthenia Gravis Consortium. Um, and we have six centers so that we could start a registry and also help um, to find patients for clinical trials that have actually been exploding uh, in the pediatric group over the last several years. Uh, so um, pediat pediatric myasthenia gravis kind of moved to the forefront of my interest um, just from kind of interactions with people uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm just so happy to be part of the, the group. Yeah, awesome. And what year was that? that you kind of got started? Um, so started with the, the consortium uh, was started in 2018. So okay. we've been going for about five years. Awesome. Meredith, tell us your story. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that is awesome, Dr. Strober, to hear um, as a former pediatric myasthenia gravis patient myself, it's um, that's just very uh, heartwarming and hopeful to hear for so many patients who have to go particularly children who have to go through this. But um, 
Yeah, as mentioned, I am Meredith O'Connor. I am the AVP of Patient Engagement um, and Advocacy and Policy at the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation of America, otherwise known as MGFA. Um, and of course, my um, tie with Myasthenia Gravis is more than professional, it's personal. And so I was diagnosed with Myasthenia Gravis uh, in 2005 at the age of 13 but was misdiagnosed for approximately uh, two years or so, give or take. So um, I always like to tell people my advocacy journey started um, during the time of my misdiagnosis. You know, I've been advocating since then. And so I've really made it my life's calling to uh, support my community members and um, help us get one step closer to a cure. Awesome. I'm glad you're here. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you guys are doing at MGFA here in just a minute. Um, yeah. To kind of get into the diagnosis of MG, Dr. Strober, could you put it in layman's terms, like what's going on in the body with someone that has this diagnosis? So in the pediatric age group, we actually have two forms. There's the really rare form of the congenital, what we call the congenital form. So kids who are born with genetic causes to have a problem with the way the muscles uh, and the nerves talk to each other. Um, but what we see more so as kids get older, and especially in adults, is that it's an, what we call an acquired form, so that for some reason the body starts making antibodies against a part of the body. Uh, and in this case, um, we have usually it's uh, antibodies against the receptors on the muscle for the chemical that it needs to be stimulated. Uh, and then the, there are some others that we're learning about over time. And so these these antibodies block the muscle from being able to get the signal. And so initially you can have uh, some contraction of the muscle, but then as you keep trying to contract the muscle, the muscle gets weaker and weaker because it just doesn't have as much of the receptors to stimulate anymore. Um, and then once you stop contracting and the muscle gets to relax, everything kind of moves back to where it was and you can get some strength back again. So you get this kind of up and down hill kind of course. Got it. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became connected with Elizabeth and Charlotte's family, um, which you may know somewhat, um, and maybe what their journey was like um, to kind of get to a diagnosis, and if that is common in the pediatric MG space, or if it was even more rare. Um, well, I think their story is unfortunately fairly common, uh, as you know, we're hearing about. So people, you know, kids tend to present um, either they present really young, there's a two to five year age range where kids present with mostly the, uh, with eye symptoms. So they have problems with moving their eyes, they have drooping of the eyelids, we call ptosis. Uh, and so it's a pretty obvious kind of problem for most kids that there's something wrong. Um, but as you get older um, and you start seeing these symptoms with droopy eyelids, uh, and then as it becomes more generalized, so the rest of the body becomes um, affected by it. You can have problems with breathing. You can have general weakness of your arms and legs. And again, it fluctuates. So a lot of people come in and they're saying, I feel weak. I can't do this. I can't do that. And when you examine them, they seem super strong. And so you're like, well, is there really something going on? And especially when you hit teenage years, we do see a lot of teenagers have issues and problems that we can't find a cause for. Uh, because of the, the stress the body's going under from adolescence and puberty and all that stuff. So it kind of cloudies things when you can't really find something um, on exam. And so we run some tests to see if we can find out what's going on. We can, we can do antibody studies, which unfortunately in kids, it's super rare to find antibodies. So in, in adults, you can get up to 80% adults will have positive antibodies. Whereas in kids, it's 50% or less most of the time. So we test for antibodies. If it's positive, it gives us the answer. Half, at least half the time it's negative. And so we're like, okay, we could do some electrical testing. We could do some medications to see if it makes you better. Sometimes that gives us an answer. And again, sometimes we're still stuck and we don't have an answer. Um, and so that's where a lot of these teenagers get misdiagnosed um, because we can't, we can't find anything and we don't know what, what to do to help them. But over time, in some cases, if we keep checking antibodies, um, 
we can, they actually can turn positive too. So then you kind of feel better that you, you're treating what you think you're treating. But it, you know, if you're in a pediatric neuromuscular clinic where there's somebody who's thinking about this condition and possibility, if you're lucky enough to get there, because it's not a common place to end up, um, we're definitely a small group around the country. Um, and somebody's thinking about it, they might be willing to start trying some treatments for the condition, even if everything else is turning coming back negative or, you know, not showing signs of myasthenia because you really believe that that's what the diagnosis is. Are there common things that are typically the misdiagnosis? Um, so what we call functional neurologic disorder now is probably the most common diagnosis that I think we see in adolescence. So functional neurologic disorder is a condition where the body is appearing to have a neurologic problem but there's no neurologic basis for it. It's a more of a mind problem causing a neurologic problem. Since the mind is part of the brain, the mind can control the brain. Um, and so a lot of times you'll see patients diagnosed with that. I've had a lot of adolescents who have facial weakness and the droopy eyelids, and then they get tested for drug abuse uh, a lot of times because they always look like maybe they've you know, been smoking marijuana and they're stoned. And so I've, I've had that story a lot. Um, kids... Uh, who just can't, they don't, they don't seem to smile. They seem depressed um, because they can't make the facial movements to actually show a smile. So uh, other psychiatric conditions like depression come up too in a lot of cases. And then sometimes the people do realize that there is some weakness going on and they may not be able to say, is it a muscle problem, a nerve problem? So they may get diagnosed with say just a general muscle disorder, what we call myopathy. And those are not treatable uh, at this point. So we're like, well, we think you have muscle disease and there's nothing we could do except kind of get you into therapy and see if we can make you stronger with physical occupation therapy, uh, which of course doesn't work in ICA Dallas. Got it. Meredith, for your story, um, what were your early symptoms and what were you misdiagnosed with for those two years? Yeah. So everything Dr. Strober just said was like walking down memory lane. Um, it was, I mean, I had, um, as the neurologist after, you know, I finally received a diagnosis after two years, the pediatric neurologist said I had textbook case myasthenia gravis, and that was after a neuro exam and blood test. But, you know, during those uh, two years of misdiagnosis, um, it started out um, as it typically does, weakness in the eyelid, or excuse me, in the eyes, and then droopy eyelids. So I had double vision and, and droopy eyelids. Then as time went on, it progressively got worse and was... I had difficulty, um, weakness in, in my entire face. So trouble chewing, trouble swallowing, trouble speaking, um, trouble smiling, all that good stuff. And then it went down also to my arms and legs. So, um, I have generalized my senior gravis and I am positive for the ACHR antibody. So, um, so yeah, I went from practitioner and practitioner to try to figure out what was wrong. And just as Dr. Strober had mentioned, um, you know, there's all those things that, we, we attribute symptoms to where it often leads to a misdiagnosis. So, so it was that, and I know I'm not the only ex example, many people uh, with myasthenia uh, will say it, or will go to a physician and perhaps they attribute their symptoms to stress or a mental health problem, or that unfortunately they're making this up all in their head, especially when those blood tests come back negative. That's really frustrating reality for many seronegative patients. Um, so the medical gaslighting piece is, is, is really um, a problem in our community. But again, as Dr. Strober said, a lot of these, I mean, it's easy for it to happen because of the fluctuation in the way this disease manifests, um, the unpredictability and just um, the, the symptoms that overlap with other indications. So. Um, you know, thankfully, though, we are getting closer to, you know, we are getting better at our diagnostic processes um, as more awareness increases, as well as, um, you know, the uptick in research. So. And Dr. Strober, I would assume from a physician standpoint, you're looking at the science. And when there's tests that don't say, yes, this is some, there is something wrong, it's probably difficult to uh, listen to what a patient's communicating or uh, even in a child, like what the parents are relaying. 
and being able to kind of, uh, especially if you're not familiar with that type of diagnosis, to say, it'd be easy to say, I would assume, that there's nothing here, this child's fine, or this person's okay. Uh, how do you navigate from a uh, doctor and patient relationship how to listen well, and then also communicate this is what the science or this is what the tests are saying, but also also still being open that there might something, there might be something there that you're not seeing or or understanding. I mean that's a really good question and it's a really hard one to answer. Um, again, when you're dealing with young kids, you know the chances that they're they're stressed or they're making it up. Uh, as people say, is pretty low. And so you know there's got to be something going on. Um, when you hit adolescence, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that comes in. It's a hard time of life for a lot of people. And when we say like functional neurologic disorder, or it used to be called conversion disorder, we're not saying that people are making up the symptoms, that they're lying about what they're feeling or what, what they're going through. It's really like they really believe in their brain that that's what's happening to them. So um, it's just that their brain is kind of playing tricks on them in a sense. So it's not, we don't think that they're crazy um, or making it up. And I think that that's a really hard thing because you want to, if there really is something going on, right, that's medical, that's something you can treat and make better, you want to go there. You want to, you want to make patients better. That's why we went into medicine to help people feel better and get better as best you can. But the the problem is that we can try some medications and the, the main medication for myasthenia is something called mestinon, which helps keep that chemical around in between the nerve and the muscle longer to help stimulate things, but it may not work for some people. And then the question is, we can move to the next level, which is to treat the immune problem that's happening. And then you start increasing risks of side effects and, and potential you know, significant problems for the, the patient and it's not necessarily easy route. And I think in the past, those medications also were a little, little bit more intense because um, they would really knock out the immune system totally. So, you know, you're running the risk of other infections, you're running the risk of, you know, blocking out the bone marrow to be able to make other types of cells. Uh, it got really scary. I think now the medications that are coming out are much more focused on the problem and those antibodies. And so the risk is, is lower, um, but it's still nothing is without risk. And so I think you, you have to be open and honest with parents and say, hey, I, I really think this is what's happening. I can't prove it. And here's you know, what we can try and do about it from the, the you know, most basic medications that we have, which are IV medications. So they're not not like a, you could take an oral medication and um, can get better. Um, there are oral medications, but those are the older ones. So do you want to like try this? And unfortunately, that means parents have to kind of have a say in the risk uh, of it all. And, and I wish I could make that decision for them. But of course, it's not my child. And it's, you know, they have to be feel comfortable with what's happening. Sure. And so sometimes it's a matter of, you know, maybe you should go see a second person, get a second opinion to see if, if, they, if they think, um, you know, going down the right path or maybe there's something I'm missing. And I think, you know, I've never had a problem with, with suggesting a second opinion to my patients because we do miss things. We don't necessarily pick up on everything or we don't think about things. I, I had a professor in med school who said there are two diseases you can't diagnose, the one you don't think about and the one you don't know about. Hmm. So... Um, I'm pretty, I try to be humble about that and don't think I know it all, um, but do want to, you know, raise the possibility of what's happening and see if the parents are willing to go there and try. I'm willing to go there and try for the kid. That's my main goal is, is the child. Yeah. You referenced earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, Charlotte and Elizabeth's journey to a diagnosis is, is pretty common, but I'm assuming you met common within a very, very rare segment of patients. Uh, how rare is MG? Sorry, yeah. So it's com their 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 course is common in the very rare pediatric myasthenia gravis group. Um, I think you know we're when we're looking at our six centers right now, and we're trying to enroll patients into our registry. We're talking a couple hundred patients. You know, 200, 300 maybe we'll eventually hit 400 patients 
in, in our sites and hopefully we'll be able to expand to more sites and get more patients. But yeah, we're not talking about uh, conditions that affect thousands and thousands of people. And that is just pediatric or that is MG white? That's, pe- that's pediatric. pediatric. Um, it's definitely much more common. When I did my training in neuromuscular medicine, we saw lots of patients with myasthenia gravis um, in, of all ages and stages. So, um, yeah, it's not, it's not uncommon if you go into an adult neuromuscular clinic that myasthenia gravis would be, would be there. Um, in, a neuro, be in a neuromuscular clinic. You know, in a neuromuscular clinic, too. You know, <laughs> because I think that's, you know, a distinguish, uh, it's a point to distinguish because a lot of people don't understand that that's a very specialized, you know, uh, field of medicine. And so it differs from general neurology. It's definitely more honed in on neuromuscular diseases. So just wanted to add, add that two cents. No, it's a good point. There's definitely a, a huge, you know, a bias that we have in neuromuscular disease because that's all I see yeah. all day. <laughs> I am curious, uh, Meredith, from your standpoint at MGFA, what does the kind of diagnostic journey for tend to look like for the patients that you support? And to be clear, you are not just supporting pediatric. You are supporting all patients, correct? All ages? Yes, that's correct. So the MGFA is the largest uh, patient advocacy organization solely dedicated to um, finding a cure for MG while supporting um, all of those affected by myasthenia gravis and living with the disease. Um, I would say the diagnostic uh, journey has improved over the years, given, like I said, this um, incline that or increase that we've seen in research and, and awareness. However, um, you know, prior to that, it's um, I would say the diagnostic journey can be very challenging and very trying. Um, you know, of course, you're going to have patients who are have years goes go with years without a diagnosis, or you know, get a diagnosis relatively quickly. But um, we often refer to this disease as a snowflake disease, meaning it manifests differently, it, it presents differently, and so um, you know, there's not really one typical pathway. But um, I would say that, like I mentioned before, the um, the, the common problems we face with the diagnostics is. Um, running into, like I said, being, you know, the medical gaslighting, so to speak, um, just the general lack of awareness in the entire community. It's not necessarily, you know, I mean, it, when I was getting diagnosed, it wasn't really on the general practitioner's radar, nor was it on my family's radar. So, you know, it's just that, that, that lack of awareness, but we are getting better uh, with, you know, providing education around myasthenia gravis. Um and just the rare aspect of this disorder, um, it's considered a rare neuromuscular disease, and it's even rarer in children, like Dr. Strober mentioned. So, I mean, you're looking at uh, hundreds of people. That is not <laughs> that is not a significant amount. So, so the diagnostic journey can be very um, traumatizing for some people. Um, obviously, it affected me to the point of where I, you know, am now advocating. Uh, for better diagnostic processes and more targeted treatments because um, it has that much of an impact. Um, even after you're diagnosed, you know, it's still, it, that sticks with you, so. Yeah, the tagline for MGFA that's on the website is for a world without myasthenia gravis. Um, and I'm, tell us a little bit about how um, you guys at MGFA are pursuing that vision and the different things that you're doing. Yeah, so we got a lot of good stuff going on at the MGFA, but um, the MGFA's mission is to create connections, enhance lives, and of course, eventually find a cure for MG. Um, the question is, how do we get there, right? So um, we really pride ourselves on funding cutting-edge research that um, uh, furthers our understanding of this disease as well as treating the disease. Uh, last year, we were actually able to award $1 million in research funding, so that was incredible. That's awesome. Um, yeah, really exciting stuff. Um, we're also working with our MG patient registry, which will ultimately um, allow researchers like Dr. Strober's doing in the pediatric population to collect information about the shared experience of MG and to help us better inform the, the care, treatment, and further clinical trials. We also have a dedicated um, medical scientific advisory council that is works with us routinely 
um, to make informed decisions about which research to pursue um, so that we can maximize the support that we provide to MG patients. So each day we're working towards um, a, a cure you know, for MG. It's not easy, but um, it's a strong pillar of our organization and it, that's what keeps us motivated to work every single day. Yeah. And I, this is, as you mentioned, um, this is a very personal uh, role for you, not just professional, um, which leads us into the conversation of since there isn't a cure, what does management look like? And I'd, I'd love your perspective, if you're comfortable, from a personal standpoint, as well as how you see that playing out in other patients that you all support. Sure. Um, like I said, this disease manifests every, you know, it looks differently and affects people differently. Um, but I am somewhat of a veteran and have, you know, my tips and tricks. But um, we have made monumental strides in, in managing MG. Uh, but uh, that being said, managing MG is like, it's like finding the right recipe, right? Um, you know, of course, from a medical perspective, that means finding the right treatments and tailoring those treatments that meet your needs and lifestyle, which really takes a lot of time and can be very demanding, not only physically, but mentally. And that's an ongoing, continuous process. For me specifically, as someone who has had this since I was a teenager, my treatment you know, plan has changed over the course of the years. And that's just the nature of, you know, you're, as you get older and just the nature of the disease. Um, managing MG, however, is just, it's so much more than finding the right treatment options. It means learning how to adapt to this new way of living. And I think that people don't realize is that people living with MG, they wake up um, with the great intentions to like everyone else, you know, you get up, you know, diet, good diet and exercise, uh, go to work, socialize with friends and family, um, check things off your to-do list, that sort of thing. But when you're diagnosed with MG, the, that disease, the disease can potentially sideline you from your normal everyday life. So, you know, I just mentioned that. And so while other things like other days, the biggest accomplishment, you can go from doing all those things to some days, the biggest accomplishment, like I said, is uh, getting up out of bed and feeding yourself. So um, it's in the hardest part is knowing or is not knowing what the day will bring you, right? Like you never know what to expect. You never know what MG is going to serve up that day. The de um, disease doesn't mark a day on a calendar and say, yeah, this is the no. day. You need, to not, right. you need to you know plan around this day because it's not going to be a great one. And so much so, not even the next hour. Like it's so hard to, um, you know, manage your day-to-day -day living when something is you know, constantly fluctuating sure. in your life and there's no rhyme or reason. So, um, but you learn to adapt, you learn to uh, make accommodations and, and advocate for accommodations. Uh, you surround yourself with people that you trust and that care about you and are willing to learn and understand this disease, even though they don't have it. Um, and ultimately it's a, it's a grieving process, you know, um, and, and accepting yourself and being patient with yourself and your body. So, um, it's a constant learning process. I, I've, like I said, I've had this disease for 20 years now and it still affects every part of my, of how I live. So, um, um, but it's, it's one of hope, you know, I, I was very ill. I couldn't chew, swallow, smile, talk, you know, I mean, I was very sick on my way to, uh, what we call an MG crisis, which requires, um, mechanical ventilation. And, uh, I thankfully have never been through that, but many MG patients do. Um, and it's just, it's a process. It's a process to get where, you know, I am today to be stable. Um, but I, I've had my fair share of the exacerbations too, but that's part of living with this chronic illness, um, mm -hmm. is learning the highs and lows. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that's a very, um, personal and, uh, I'm, I know that will mean a lot to people to hear your perspective and experience with that. Dr. Strober from the physician side. Um, how do you help prepare parents, especially as much as possible, to handle what Meredith just described as this very up and down, no clear path on how to, what to expect or how to manage that? What do you do to help parents prepare for that as much as possible? Um, you asked very difficult questions. Um, I think... You know, I, again, I, I try to be as honest as possible. You know, I, we talk about medications as the way to kind of help control things as much as we can medically. Um, 
and that we, you know, the, the goal is to have as normal a life as possible, uh, to be able to do all the things that you want to do, be it teenager or adult. Um, go to school, hang out with your friends, um, maybe do some extracurricular activities, but that might need to be tailored to how you're doing. And it may not necessarily be as easy as, okay, I'm just going to limit myself to this and that's going to be it. And then that's how I'm going to go because there may be a day when, you know what, I don't, I just don't feel as well today. If you're sleep deprived um, and, you know, you talk about teenagers and trying to get through school. And so staying up late to get homework done and then stressed because there's all that work to do. And on top of it, you know, making sure you eat well and, you know, stay hydrated and kind of keep your body as good as possible. There may be days when that's just not going to be a possibility. Uh, or you're like, hey, there's a big game after school day and I want to go and I want to participate. And so you go and then the next day you're just wiped out. Mm. Um, your body has limited resources. So it's not as simple as like, this is what you do and, and everything will be stable. It's like, there's going to be good days and there's going to be not good days. Um, and, you know, try to remember that when you're in a not good day, that that means there's a good day to come mm. is the way I like to look. I'm always about looking, you know, keeping up the hope. And I, I don't know what the process is going to be. Um, some, some people go into remission um, after a year or two. So there's always, I always try to keep that hope alive um, that maybe this will eventually subside, especially in kids as they go through puberty, a lot of things changes. Um, so I try to keep some of that hope there, but, you know, it's trying to also be realistic that it may not, it may be something you'll have to deal with for your adult life, but, learning how to manage it and learning how to deal with the days that aren't good and how do you work around that um, and getting and getting a good team in place, like people you can call to help you out. You know, as kids, it's a little easier just because you have your parents right there. That's kind of their job. Um, although if, you know, if you're in school and you're not feeling well and you have two parents or one parent who works, um, it may not be so easy as, you know, somebody to be able to come and get you. Um, and that's always, you know, so trying to get the support system in place. So my social worker and my nurse case manager are just as important part of my team as the pulmonologist uh, or the gastroenterologist or whoever else needs to be there for the medical side of things, because having good supportive care is important. Um, maybe you need a therapist or a psychiatrist to help, because even though you may not, your symptoms may not be due to depression, you may feel sad or even get depressed because of this life that you have to live now, um, that you have this condition. And so there's nothing wrong with asking for extra help and support. And we also kind of do make sure that that's taken care of. And on top of trying to get through adolescence and on top of trying to get through childhood and, and wanting to go to college, like there's no reason why you can't continue to graduate high school and go to college and maybe grad school and maybe, or maybe you don't even want to go that route. You just want to get a job or do something. I, you know, whatever it is, you should have your dreams and you should try to do whatever you can to get, you know, live your dreams. And that's kind of how I push um, people to kind of keep going. And it's not always easy. And I always sure. feel bad when patients call and they're just not in a good space. Uh, and then we try to talk through it and get them some help they need for that. So it sounds like a combination of being realistic with 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 families with parents, um, while also pointing to hopeful potential outcomes, and you know that that's either kind of setting them up for um, to be able to hope for great things, but to also be ready for those down days when they come because they will. But like you said, there will be better days that will follow after that. Right, and I think now you know. There's so many new medications that are coming out. Um, and in the, in the past, as pediatric practitioners, we used to have to kind of rely on the studies that were done in adults uh, and then try to make up dosing guidelines and then hope that we mm -hmm. convince insurance companies to pay for these medications that weren't approved for pediatrics and not even knowing what it would do uh, to a pediatric patient. But the, the FDA and the European Union um, all the boards that oversee these medications are now actually making it a point that studies have to be done in pediatric patients to get approval for the adult patients as well. And so pharmaceutical companies are actually doing more and more pediatric studies. So we're developing new treatments for pediatric patients. And I think that's also something I like to point out because I think it's another ray of hope that we're not, we're not done. This is not just 
at the end of the story that we, we keep making progress and we keep moving forward and this is just the beginning and hopefully we can keep making things better and better and better. Yeah. What kind of research is being conducted right now and how do you expect that that will impact um, the lives of MG patients in the future? So, you know, there's always the, the research that's going on in the labs and trying to figure out about antibodies. Because, again, there's probably antibodies that we don't test for that, that are there that we're trying to look for. Um, or how else can we, can we change the antibodies or the way the antibodies are affecting the body um, and looking at other, other ways of improving uh, treatment. Um, but the big research right now that's going on are drugs that either affect the level of the antibodies that you have or the effects that the antibodies have on your body to try and help improve the symptoms that you have um, from what's going on and in ways that are much kinder and gentler to the body than the, the ways we used to have to do it. So right now there's a lot of clinical trials going on uh, looking for pediatric patients for these, these drugs that are being developed. And are those mostly done in the United States? Uh, actually, because it's such a rare condition, a lot of these studies are done internationally. Got it. Um, and so it's it's really been a great collaboration. And a lot of these companies are actually not even in the United States. Is I mean, they have may have an office in the United States, but some of them are actually based in Europe um, or other countries. So, um, there, you know, there's definitely patients from all over the world that get into these these trials. But it's still hard to find these patients to get into yeah. these clinical trials. And Meredith, I would assume in the work that you're in, you're keeping a close eye on research, not just because of the role, but because of the potential impact for you as well. Um, what have you learned in your 20 years of this diagnosis uh, from a research standpoint, and how do you kind of keep a pulse on that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, when I was initially diagnosed, there really wasn't much out there other than you know, mustanon and, and immunosuppression. And, and, and now we're seeing all these more targeted therapies and that's because of the research that's currently taking place. So um, this is a really exciting time in the MG community. Um, you know, research is how we get closer to a cure. And uh, at, we at the MGFA, we, we support studies that are working towards providing, um, you know, better support and improving the lives of those living with MG and neuromuscular junction disorders. I say with much of what we hone on, hint on <clears throat> at the MGFA, um, like I said, we rely heavily on our medical scientific advisory council um, and lean on them for their expertise. But what we like to hone in on from a research perspective is to, um, we're really hoping to improve our diagnostic processes and facilitate early diagnosis. Um, how the disease works and how it evolves. Uh, developing targeted therapies, which is a huge priority in what we're currently seeing in the um, uh, our research and drug development today. Um, so of course we want, to, we want tr treatments that are going to have the maximum benefit to patients with you know, minimal side effects. Um, working with patients, you know, hearing the patient voice, the patient experience to understand the impact of the disease in its entire, entirety, not just the, from, a, from a medical standpoint, and to broaden our strategy uh, and research to include um, patients in underserved communities, such as pediatric patients with myasthenia. So broadening that um, uh, patient population. Got it. Uh, Dr. Strober, I have more of a broad question for you, if it's okay. Um, we talk to a, a lot of families that find themselves, because they're, all the families that we're talking to are on a rare medical journey with their kids, and they often find themselves in a physician's office or some sort of clinic where they are having to inform and advocate on behalf of their kid uh, to a medical professional that may not eat, know as much about the diagnosis as the parents, and it puts them in this weird spot. And I'm curious, from your standpoint, do you have any advice on those for those families on how to advocate strongly for their kids while also maintaining a great relationship with the medical team? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think that the, the concept of these rare diseases um, it has actually increased over the last several years because the genetic testing that we can do now. So instead of having these 
but patients where we knew something was happening and we didn't know why, um, being able to get more diagnoses um, is becoming uh, increasingly common, I'm happy to say, but it also increases the problems that we have in clinic because I have patients who come in and go, hey, I have this condition and I'm like, uh, okay, teach me, please, because I haven't right. heard about that one. Or or I, I admit, like, I'll go do some research before, you know, check the chart before they come in and go, oh, I haven't heard of that that specific protein abnormality. Let me go check it and see what's going on. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully the positions that they're talking to are open-minded about the fact, again, that we don't necessarily know everything. And especially with rare diseases, you may see one or two patients in a practice in your, you know, 25, 30, 40 years with these conditions. And so being open-minded to what's going on, I think that we're also really fortunate that with these rare conditions, a lot of support groups like the MGFA are out there. Um, and so we can definitely, you know, A, as a, as a physician, talk to these support groups um, and organizations that are there for, for these patients to A, get our patients to, over to them for help and, and in, in get their more support from other families that are going through the same thing that like, if I don't necessarily have a patient with a similar condition and I wanna be able to connect them um, to some other family so that they can hear other perspective on things or what other, what their physicians are doing um, that may then they come back to me and say, hey, I met this patient and this is what um, their physician recommended. What do you mm -hmm. think of this? And then we can have open conversations about it because um, I think that's what, I think it's really important to stay open-minded in medicine. Um, and I would hope that all of my colleagues out there would, would be that way and, and to listen to patients. And if, and if it's not, not possible to um, do that, then refer them to somebody else who may have a little bit more experience uh, in that field. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the positives of COVID, if I can even say that out loud, um, was this kind of concept of, of Zooming and kind of communication. Um, it did open up the world of medicine for, uh, for a long time, and I was able to see patients from all over. Um, it's not as uh, possible now with, with Zoom, but um, it definitely can be done. There are definitely consultations that can be done so that you can talk to people who have better understanding um, of what the condition is so that, again, maybe that can then inform the, the clinician who's at home because it's important to have somebody locally who can take care of you. Um, but there's definitely many ways. And I think it, again, in, in my in my space, neuromuscular disease, so myasthenia is one of them, but like almost everything I take care of is a rare disease. Um, there's really, you know, even the most common of what I see is a rare disease out mm -hmm. there. So a lot of times patients will come to me and say, hey, I heard about this clinical trial, or I heard about this medication, or I heard about this special treatment, you know, can you, can we talk about it? Can you, and I'm happy to learn about it. And then I can share that with my other patients too. Um, so I think, and it, it is kind of one of the, the reasons why the registry became so important to me because I wanted to be able to, to connect people in a better way and to learn what was going on because the treatment, even the people that I know for, you know, decades, um, and maybe, you know, have had similar trainings too. We do things differently just from the experiences we've had over the years. Um, and so learning from my colleagues and hearing and going to meetings um, and hearing about things that are going on and staying on top of things is, could be really helpful. So I think if you have a condition where there is a special, like in this case with myasthenia, you can, you know, if you can get into an intermuscular clinic and say, hey, I, I want to go see someone who specializes in this condition, is that a possibility? Then often you can at least get a consultation with somebody. Um, but I do think it's really hard to have to broach that as a parent to ask a physician to kind of step out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. um, and either prescribe things they're not used to or talk to somebody or um, find out who's uh, who else is out there that you can talk to. But I think that the kids who do the best are the parents who ha are the ones who have the parents who are the biggest advocates. And I hate to place that burden on parents because they're already dealing with the fact that they have a child who has a condition that they have to take care of and has increased needs. So to think about having to advocate, even if it's with the school system, um, is another place where parents have to be big advocates. Because if they don't advocate, the school's not going to give up the resources that they have for that child so easily. So um, again, I think 
a team, having a team, having a group, having a village, um, as they say, is so super important when you're dealing with especially rare conditions um, to be able to, you know, A, take some time off if you need to and know that, that you're covered and there's people around because parents need that help and support as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and not, and not, to, you know, if you, if you upset somebody because you asked a question about something, then maybe that's not the right person for you to see. And I, I again, I hate saying things like that, but, um, it, it happens. You want to have, I don't, I, I'll say it out loud. I don't get along with every single person who walks in my office. Sometimes a parent and I just don't see eye to eye, but yet we can still find space where we can work together and, and make mm -hmm. the best decisions for people. Uh, and I think understanding that, that you don't always have to, um, agree with each other, but hearing each other out and understanding where each other's coming from, I think it takes a, it takes a big person on both ends of the table to, to be able to do that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, with going there and seeing what the results are. Sure. And I, I guess the trust element's probably the biggest, trusting the other, that the other, that both parties absolutely have the best interest of the child at heart. Like that's really what's the driver. Uh, and I would assume that if you lose that trust, then it's probably time to go a different direction. And yes, and I there's and again, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. If someone takes offense because you decided to go somewhere else, um, then that's not your problem, yeah. right? Um, you need to you need to get what's the best thing for you. I mean, even as a parent of a child who doesn't have a medical condition, I still, you know, want to make sure my child gets the best out of life as they can. Um, that's just the number one goal for hopefully every every parent that's out there. Um, but especially it becomes even harder when you have to deal with, with things that you don't even know about and that you're learning about as well. And maybe there's not a lot of information about either. Mm -hmm. It makes it even harder. Yep. Well, to wrap up, Meredith, what would you say to families who maybe find themselves on a journey with a new diagnosis, uh, whether it's MG or something else, uh, about the importance of finding advocacy organizations like MGFA and using them as a resource to navigate and work through the challenges that come with a new diagnosis? Sure. Well, I'm, I feel for all the families that have to go through uh, a new diagnosis. I've been there um, and it's, it's, it's no easy um, path to be on, but I would say for uh, especially parents and caregivers and support systems of, of children that are going through a new diagnosis. I would say arm yourself with the credible knowledge and resources, and that'll ultimately allow you to advocate on behalf of your child. Lean into organizations like the MGFA um, who can provide that sort of education and support like we do with our various resources and programming, like the webinars we host. Um, while you may not necessarily be a medical expert, you and your child are experts in your own right um, as you live and cope with this disease. Um, and uh, there's something to be said about that experience and it should not be dismissed and it should be valued. I would also say um, reiterate engaging with um, others going through the same experience as Dr. Strober had mentioned, finding support groups that are related, whether it's to caregivers or rare disease patients, um, support groups are also not a one-size-fits-all, but um, they can facilitate great conversation, educate parents um, on this, this new journey that they're on, um, and foster su that support that parents need as well. Um, and thankfully, we're able to host um, a variety of support groups. We have them all across the country. Um, many of them are particular to certain subgroups, whether that's um, you know a certain antibody, certain age group, um, a caregiver support group, and we also are trying to really meet the needs of um, all patients. So we have in-person support groups, uh, virtual support groups, things like that. Um, and we have, thankfully, we have such a dedicated uh, group of volunteers that are working with us to uh, make these support groups happen. So um, I think, you know, just having a community and like, <laughs> I actually said the other day, it takes a village to fight MG, and it really is true. This is a family disease. This is not just a, it affects one person, it affects, you know, the people around you. And so you also want to make sure that there's people that you can trust and count on. And part of that team is your provider. Um, 
you know, like I said, they're going to be the medical experts, but you're the expert in your disease experience. So come together and work together, meet in the middle and see how we can uh, work to find the best treatment so that, you know, children can live their, you know, best lives and, and as close to normal as possible. So um, this disease can be incredibly lonely. Um, so having that sort of support and engaging with fellow community members and, like I said, um, educating yourself and, and being in tune and taking action and not being afraid to ask questions and um, but also, you know, think outside of the box and that this disease has challenged me in every facet of my life and it's required me to, you know, I'm not a, it's a square peg in a round hole, right? It's like you just, you don't fit. And so it's learning how to maximize um, your abilities in, a, in an able-bodied world. So um, just, you know, being able to empower yourself that way is incredibly important. So um, I encourage parents and caregivers or anyone who's caring for a child to, to, to do so. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time uh, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, but more importantly, thank you for the work that you're doing in your respective fields to support um, families like uh, Charlotte and Elizabeth, and not only now, but in the future, because of the research and everything you're learning in the process and the funds that you're raising and granting to these research organizations to eventually help find a cure. Um, you guys are doing great work, and uh, I've been honored to have this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you for having us. All right. This will publish, I think, uh, a week from tomorrow is our plan. So once it's live, I'll send you guys a link and you can share it with uh, anybody you think uh, that would benefit from kind of helping grow the awareness specific uh, for MG.